Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we continue our series on the Gospel of John. Enjoy. We're picking it up again in uh, John chapter 2. All right, so what has happened, if you remember from last week, what has happened is Jesus went into the temple. It was the it was a time of the Passover, so that would have been the normal thing for him to do. And he encountered some commerce going on there at the uh, at the temple. And 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 so does, who remembers what the commerce was? Who remembers what the economic uh, growth that was happening at the uh, temple? What was it? Yeah, remember the the uh, the money changers were there, and they had to be there because they had exchanged the the pagan money for the holy money sort of idea. All right, and then there were people there that were in charge of some animals, and what was their role there? Yeah, they were they were providing the the uh, the sacrifice, the pure sacrifice that would only be accepted and would be unblemished animals, in particular a lamb. And so they had their uh, sheep pen there. And, and so you can imagine the, the chaos and the din and the loudness and the noise and all those kinds of things. And so, oh, yes, and also the smell. If you've ever gone to the stock show in Fort Worth, you'll know exactly what, uh, what I'm talking about. So there would have been all those sort of things that would have been very disruptive to anyone who had also come to the to uh, Jerusalem that day for the purpose of worship. I mean, that was really what they were there to do. And so Jesus goes in, he sees all that, and he unloads, right? And he turns over the money, uh, money tables, and he drives out all the animals and all those kinds of things. And of course, then he is creating this, this, uh, this, this large fervor as well. And then we remember what his words were that he said, he had zeal for his father's house. How dare you turn this, this house of prayer into uh, basically into a den of, of commerce. So then the Pharisees and the, the, the officials of, uh, of, the, of the Jews, they see this happening. And notice what happens is their reaction is not the idea that it needed to be done or not. They recognized that it needed to be done. They recognized that there were abuses going on. But what they wanted to know was by whose authority could you do this to do this particular sign? So we pick it up now in verse 23 uh, and following where there's kind of some interesting reflection that John is doing on, uh, on this event. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Kind of an interesting little sort of interlude there, isn't it? That John is, is reflecting back on all of this. And what he says is, is that many people now began to see in Jesus his messianic potential, if we could call it that. That they began to see what Jesus was doing and the significance of what he was doing. And that word signs is what gives us that clue. And we talked a little bit about signs last week. So what is a sign? What, what, is that, what does that mean? It's a sign. Remember? How many of you were here last week? Could you like raise your hand? That'd be really nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Two of you were here. All right. All right. That explains it. All right. So remember, a sign is something that looks forward to or points to, right? And the thing that John's use of that word sign is, has to do with saying of Jesus that he is the true Messiah. He's the real thing. And what, what, what John does is he takes the miracles that Jesus did and the acts that Jesus did, and he says, this is all an indication of who Jesus is. He is the real thing. And so what he's saying is now people are starting to, to, to consider that. People are starting to, to believe that because they see what he's doing. But then this kind of interesting little part here. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Who is the them? To the people. 
Now, what is he saying about that? See, we talked at, we've talked quite a bit about the expectations that people had about the kind of Messiah that they were looking for. What were they looking for? Yeah, they wanted somebody, at least initially, who was going to bring about an earthly greatness to Israel. That was kind of the dream that was held out. Does it make sense, at least logically, that they would have been looking for that? Absolutely, because currently in their society and in their day-to-day life, it's being governed by whom? By the Romans. And before that were the Greeks, and before that were the Persians, and before that was who know they were in exile. So you have, you have all of these, these, uh, these uh, 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 governing agencies or govern, governing bodies that are part of their history for, for over 400 years. And you get some sense here that, that they were yearning for how it was in the days of David and Solomon. How it was in the good old days. Anybody ever yearn for the good old days? Do we have anybody doing that? Now, you know, I need to ask the question. Were the good old days all that good? No, No, they weren't. Because during the good old days, everybody was saying what? Oh, let's have the good old days. So everybody looks back and says the good old days were the good old days, even way better than, than the ones that we're in. All right. So Jesus knows this about people. Jesus knows this about you. Jesus knows this about me. That the kind of Messiah that we often look for is one that will relieve us of discomfort, who will relieve us of having to be, uh, having to go without, who will provide for us whenever we want, who will do for us the things that maybe uh, we think ought to be done for us by virtue of the fact that we believe in him. What they look for, the note says, somebody who would be powerful, somebody who would be prosperous, and somebody who would be popular, and frankly, who wouldn't be willing to follow that kind of king. It is kind of interesting, but I think no coincidence, that that was exactly what Satan was attempting to seduce Jesus with, when he was tempting him in the wilderness for those 40 days and 40 nights. Remember the temptations? You know, if you're hungry, tell the stones to come and turn into bread. If you want to be popular, jump off the temple and have every angel in heaven catch you before you hit the ground. And if you want power, I can give it to you. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Well, and they had the words of Isaiah, which is where I am right now in my Bible reading, where... He, uh, where God promised to restore Israel. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. the thought of him as being the restorer. That's right. Yeah, hoped he would be. Yes, and, and oftentimes that we sort of look at the spirituality or the spiritual aspect of restoration and we say, oh, that's very good, that's very good. But what I really want is the other part that goes with it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, 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 uh, the glamour of it, if you will, or the, uh, the greatness of it. So it says, he himself knew what was in man. What is it that is in man? Sin is in man. And when we talk about sin, now we have to remember that we're talking about sin in terms of the condition of sin more than we're talking about the symptom of the condition of sin, which is the doing wrong things or the saying wrong things, the thinking wrong things, those kinds of things. See, Jesus knows how we are. He also knows what we do as a result of how we are. And so because of that sinful nature that he knows we have, then what happens is that sinful nature easily turns anything into an idol in an attempt to find security in life. And see, that's what's so attractive about power. That's what's so attractive about prosperity. That's what's so attractive about popularity is that on the surface, it gives off the feeling that you can have security if you have all of that. I read an interesting uh, study. Was it a study uh, this week? Or maybe it was just an observation. You know, people that study 
the generations of people. So they study the builders, you know, the people that were born around World War II and then the baby boomers. And, and then we hear a lot about millennials and Gen Xers and kind of all that. Well, every group seems to have a name. And so the, uh, the next group that is coming along, which I think is somewhere now they're looking at uh, basically junior high kids up to a, a certain age, are called Gen Generation Z. Now, they're running out of letters, so I don't know what's going to happen after that, all right? But what they're saying about, at least what these studies are saying about that generation is, is that it is, of all the generations, the most anxious. The most anxious. Now, it is, there's an irony there, isn't there? That given the fact that this generation is also the most connected with technology, isn't it ironic if this is a, if this is a true uh, observation or accurate observation that the most connected among the most connected are the most anxious? Sort of makes you wonder if the promises of what is promised to be the connectivity is in fact accomplishing that, or if it's a, a, accomplishing something different. I don't know. Okay, so I think the jury is still out on that. But you think in terms of, and we'll get to the questions. You think in terms of. When you're anxious, where do you find your security? Because when you're anxious, insecurity is the thing that you are experiencing. And so you think if, you, if this is one of the most insecure of the, uh, of the, the cohorts of people that are, are being studied then, uh, or being looked at, then where, where, where are we missing the boat? So just some thoughts here. Yeah. Well, I just heard on the radio yesterday <clears throat> a study that they did for kids that went, went to summer camp. Summer camp they kids. They leave their, you, know, you can't bring your electronics, and they were saying that their level, stress level really went up the first couple of days of not having it. Of not having and the phone or something, yeah. If they were at a two-week camp or whatever, by the end of it, they were way less stressed and really enjoyed not having the the device, but, yeah. you know, I'm sure as soon as they get but back. But those first two days, that must have been, yeah. Well, they said that, that the stress level went way up. Yeah. And they interviewed all these kids afterwards, and they said yeah. they really had, yeah. they were really less stressed not having it. I thought that was interesting. And we, th we look at that, and we say, oh, boy, those kids, they really have problems, don't they? But how many of us adults, have you ever, like, had your phone go down or something like that, or it's broken or something like that, and you keep looking at it thinking that if you keep looking at it, it will wake up, and it, and it doesn't wake up, you know, and you're thinking, gosh, what am I missing out on? And I just know somebody's trying to reach me and all those kinds of things. I mean, doesn't it, it, that would happen. I'd, I know I've told you the story. I had some buddies who were pastors who, I mean, they still are pastors, but anyway, they, they, uh, they went on a uh, float trip down one of the rivers that's uh, through, I uh, think maybe through the Grand Canyon or one of the canyons like that. And so they, so that when they went on the trip, they all took their phones with them because they thought, you know, we might, somebody might die or we, they need to get in touch with us or something like that. Well, when they got down to the bottom of the canyon, the, the uh, phones didn't work. They weren't <laughs> towers, you know, up on top of the thing. And they talked about that, that the first two days it was like going through this addictive withdrawal, you know, from just the uh, uh, whatever it is that the stimulation or whatever it is that the entertainment or just that idea of, oh, I just know that somebody needs me. And it took about five days for them, almost the same thing that by the third or fourth day, they started, their body started to kind of go, okay, it's going to be okay. Oh, it's going to be okay. So anyway, kind of interesting aspect of that. Yes. Uh, going along with that, they were also the most... They're lonely. 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 Yeah, they yeah. interact yeah. on one-on-one yeah. conversations. They're, they've got their faces and their... Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. all the time. That's it's it. It's not communicating face-to-face. Mm -hmm. -face. So, so again, it's that human... It's human to human. It's not human to screen, screen to screen, screen to human. It's human to human. Yeah, see? So again, sometimes the promises of something or the hype of something doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. And again, I would say that, you know, in our day and age, technology is here to stay. Okay, we all need to have a way to, to deal with it. And, and I actually would probably have uh, among us here today people who have worked in the technology field 
because of the area that we're a part of here in, in North Dallas. You know, this is not something that is foreign to us at all. And we need to see it as God's blessing. But again, it's that idea of how do you take the blessing and keep it from becoming something that I, I think my whole life depends on. And that's where it's so easy for things like this to become idolatrous in the sense that I'm going to get all I need for, uh, for that. By the way, what's the definition of an idol? Just to uh, refresh memory a little bit. What, what is an idol? It's a false god, right? What's a god? Remember Luther's definition of what a God is? Remember this? Remember we talked about this five years ago. Don't you remember this? Yeah. Yeah, remember it's that to which you look for the highest good in your life. That to which you look for the highest good in your life is Luther's definition of a God, G-O-D. So you think in terms of that, if I'm anxious or if I'm lonely, or if I feel disconnected from the world, if I feel hopeless, I'm going to be looking for something that's going to give me a sense of the highest good in my life. And once I find it, or what I think it is, I'm all in. Because if I'm lonely, if I'm broken, if I'm empty, if I'm fragmented, if I'm insecure, whatever it is, and who isn't, we all are, there's going to be that tendency to move toward and that temptation to move toward something that may promise itself to be the real thing, but at the end of the day, isn't. And so again, that's part of segueing back to what John's doing. John would have recognized that in his day because of the fact that how many gods did the Greeks have? Oh, multiple gods. So, so the idea is that kind of the more anxious we are, the more, the more fragmented we are, then the more we're going to be looking for, oh, this is it. Oh, no, that's not it. Oh, this is it. This is, that is it. That, that's, that's human nature. And so that's why big, a big part of John's message is, is, yeah, I understand why you're looking for all these other, other uh, opportunities to be secure. But at the end of the day, the real thing is Jesus. Jesus is the real, the real Messiah. So now let's go to chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay, what do you know about the Pharisees? Nicodemus is a member of the Pharisees. It also suggests, as the word ruler there suggests, that he was also in the upper echelon of the, uh, the Jewish council. There was a Jewish council by the name of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin comes into play later in Jesus' life when Jesus is taken before the Sanhedrin at his arrest. So that's kind of where we kind of would say, oh yeah, now I remember what that is. But the Sanhedrin was made up of 70 uh, Jewish leaders, and they actually had jurisdiction over every Jew in the world. So it wasn't just that it was a local, a local thing for them. All right? That was a big deal to be a part of, this, of the Sanhedrin. But what do we know about Pharisees? What do you know about Pharisees? Yeah, Richard. They were set up to uh, police adherence to the laws. Okay, so the big thing for them was, is are you following the law in a pure way? And it wasn't enough that they would follow it, but in their minds, they were, it was their job to make sure that everybody else followed it as well. And so we see these encounters, if you want to, that's kind of a nice way of describing them, right? Between Jesus and the Pharisees over the sort of legalistic kinds of things that the Pharisees would be aware of. Can you think of some times when, when Jesus and the Pharisees just sort of butted heads? Hmm? Yeah, he the Sabbath. yeah, the the Sabbath seemed to be the main, the big thing for them, right? So when uh, they were uh, get, gathering some grain, you know, they're kind of walking along, grabbing some grain off of the uh, off of the wheat or whatever the grain was, and they ate it. Then the Pharisees were right there on them. You are doing work on the Sabbath, and God's law expressly forbids work on the Sabbath. Yeah, Brian. Did the Sanhedrin create those laws, or was that a higher group? No, actually, they were the ones that sort of administered those. So, so the Pharisees came along during, remember the time between the Testaments, okay, between the Old Testament and New Testament, the last prophet was 
Malachi, remember Zechariah, Malachi in there. And then, and then here comes who? John the Baptist. So what was the time span during that time? 400 years. So you got 400 years where you don't have a prophet coming in and saying to the people, thus says the Lord. Well, then during that time with that, see, that's how they were accustomed to having guidance from God on how to deal with things in life, right? Spirituality, living your life every day, being a believer, all those kinds of things. Well, what was going on politically or what was going on in a national way during that 400 years? They're being overrun by pagan nations. And whenever a pagan nation would come through, then what would they leave there with them? Their customs, including their religion. So you have all of these religions of, of, you have Persian, you have Greek, you have Roman, and everything in between. And so what the fear was on the part of the Jewish leadership was, we are in danger of losing our identity. We don't have a temple anymore because that got ransacked. Our people have been carried off to exile. We have just a, just a skeleton crew, if you will, that's living here. We have all of these influences of the culture around us saying to us, this is how you have to be. This is the food you have to eat. These are the customs you need to follow. This is the religion and the God you need to worship. So you can kind of see, I can, where there was a natural sort of um, inclination to say, we got to figure out what to hang on to here. Because if we don't hang on to what is part of our identity and part of who we are, we're in danger of losing that. Could that happen today? It could, and in some cases is. See, sometimes when we take those things for granted... And we say, oh, we don't need to focus on that because everybody knows that already. We stop teaching it. We stop preaching it. We stop doing it. We stop living it. And eventually, we don't even believe it anymore. That's what was beginning to happen in Israel's life. In some sense, and people that study these things and look at these things and then reflect back on them, are wondering if in some sense the Christian church in, in contemporary life, in our day and age, is that we haven't contributed in, some, uh, contributed in some way to the low level of biblical literacy that people have today. Have you read about that, biblical literacy levels? That, that, that people today don't know all the stories that many of us grew up with. And I think some of that's because, you know, again, society looks at the Bible and says, well, it's just one of many books. It's not the truth. It's just, you know, there's lots of truths. I mean, society does that. But I think to some degree, what happens sometimes in the church is that we say to ourselves, we don't need to tell those, to keep telling those stories. We don't need to keep preaching that. We don't need to keep teaching that because everybody knows that already. And how many of you have sat in on a service? This would never happen in Bible study. I know that. Okay. <laughs> And thought to yourself, I don't need to listen to that because I've heard this forever. And this is the same thing over and over again. And what's the point? How many of you don't raise your hand? Cause I know it's everybody. All right. <laughs> but don't we all do that? Don't we say, I, you know, I want to hear something new. I don't want to hear that same old stuff over and over again. And yet what happens is if we all sort of give into that in a sort of per pervasive way, what happens is it doesn't get taught anymore. It doesn't get remembered anymore. It doesn't get learned anymore. And that's part of why I think in the Old Testament, you know, God was very specific to his people about the idea that you need to do this and then tell your kids what it is so that they would understand. If you were in early service, you would have heard the, uh, the reading from Joshua, uh, the Old Testament reading. Remember the 12 stones? You know, I've read that story a million times, and yet when I was reading it this morning, I go, holy cow, I've never read that before. It was just an amazing moment. But in the, in the actual uh, telling of that, uh, what, what God says to Joshua is, and when your children come to you and ask you, why are you carrying these 12 rocks around with you? Then you can tell them what? That these are the stones that came from the Jordan River. 
And this is what enabled us to walk across the Jordan on dry land, just like we were able to walk across the Red Sea on dry land. And this is what God did for us. What's the point? God did it and tell your kids. And I think somewhere along the line, we kind of dropped, we kind of dropped that, didn't we? Or at least we started to think we don't need to do that because they already know it. Or we don't need to do it because they can just look it up on Wikipedia, right? And maybe there's something to be said for the contribution that we're making to the lack or to the, the presence of that deficit. Yeah. Well, the other thing is I wonder is if we have also stopped telling the stories where David's out slaying people left and right. Uh-huh. People that already lived in the land. Yeah, oh, the Canaanites? And so we're looking at, well, wait a minute, uh, you might think, okay, that mm-hmm. we did that to the Native Americans, and we, that's a bad thing. So let's not tell about David, because, you know... Um, yeah. Politically. Yeah, the PC story, yeah. It would be interesting to see if somebody put together a PC Bible, what that would look like. <laughs> and... <laughs> And how many stories would be left out that would be, you know, we, because sort of this idea that we need to sanitize it because, oh, my gosh, I would be so offended that that story is in there. All right. Yeah. 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 Any other thoughts? Yeah. Carl. Well, we, we, can tell, we tell the story. We I think the youth of today and even, even us growing up had a hard time recognizing what God God is doing for us each and every day. Yeah. And yeah. You know, part of our coming together should, should include an awareness of that. Yeah, I mean, it's not just a story. I mean, we can get into the story for the story's sake. But it really is, isn't it, about the idea of the message, which is God is active in history and God is doing what God uh, is he sees fit to do, but he's doing, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he hadn't gone anywhere. Right. Yeah. So there is that, there, that aspect of that, of connecting the story to the presence of God. And that then the message becomes one of that's where our ultimate security is that the world will offer a plethora of opportunities to have security in the sense of, oh, we promise you this, we promise you that. And, uh, and, and there are great assurances. You know, the world has a great, has a great PR pr- uh, process. And we as humans buy into that. But the ultimate security doesn't come from that. And that's the continued message over and over again. Yes? I'm curious about the change of the Bible to make it more uh, like the new Bibles I'm seeing now. Mm-hmm. They're using the terms that we used to use in different ways. And it makes it hard for me to pass down some stories because some of the stuff my kids are learning in Lutheran schools is a, a um, the children's Bible kind of simplifies. Uh-huh. The children's Bible had simplified, yeah. Stuff, mm-hmm. So sometimes some of the stuff I'm learning, I'm having trouble not giving maybe too much or from this Bible to that Bible. It seems right. like some of the stories are learned a little differently than when I went to school. Yeah. Well, and some of that's because of different translations and the way we use words now. Are there, Do they still have children's Bible? Is that still kind of... A lot of us grew up with little visits with God and some of those different things that kind of went out of popularity and then we didn't see them anymore. But the, but the, the value of them was that it, for a whole generation of people, it, well, for me anyway, I thought that Adam and Eve looked just like the pictures that were in the little visits with God, right? You know, but I mean, there's something to be said for that sort of learning the story, hearing it again and again and again and again. So sometimes having the huge variety of Bibles that we have now kind of makes it harder, doesn't it? There's so many choices. You know, when this all started is when Baskin and Robbins came into being. (laughs) That's what happened. Because before Baskin and Robbins, what did we have? Chocolate, vanilla, strawberry. That's what we had. And in Bibles, we had King James, RSV, and then we had the Living Bible, which was a paraphrase. 
See, so that now you know where all that problem came from, right? Okay. All right, let's go back to the Pharisees. So, oh, yeah, yeah, who, who, oh, Kathy, yeah. Well, when you were talking, I was, that's that me thinking, we, we have this tendency to go back, we've talked to this earlier about the good old days. The good old days, yeah. And, of course, I'm a big believer is the only thing good about the good old days is they're gone. And uh, <laughs> I think also. Thank you for that bias. I've been nice to know what it is. Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, we have a short memory about what we are um, with God, and you look at the, the Israelites with Moses. The minute Moses left, they were out worshiping that gold. Oh, yeah. Them. It didn't take very long, it did it? It didn't take very yeah. long. Mm-hmm. And it, my favorite verse in the Bible is nothing new under the sun. So I think we need to remember mm-hmm. we're no different than the That's correct. people then. I mean, yeah. But it's, it's nothing new. I, I just have mm-hmm. this thing about people who talk about today being so bad. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, it's pretty. It's, it's pretty relative, isn't it? It's you know? the same. Yeah. And that's what you said here about what Jesus knew the people. That's right. That has not changed. That has not changed. And you, you can create as utopian a society as you want in your mind that we will eliminate all bias, all prejudice, all judgmentalists. We will do that by setting up this perfect place. And within a year or less, what do you have? you have the same thing. See, Jesus knew what was in man. He knows what is in me. He knows that. And what we're going to see in, in his interaction with Nicodemus is that that's why Jesus points to this idea of being born again, of having rebirth, because it takes the birth of a new nature in us to deal with the fact that we have the old nature in us and you can't fix it. God can, but we can't. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try because we want society to be a better place. We want it to be fair. We want, we want people to have equal opportunity for wh- whatever it might be. But to think that you can do it, that you can correct that by simply creating a structure, a humanly created structure without having God being a part of that. Is, is absurd. And that's one of the things that we're going to see. Nic- and so see Nicodemus, he is thinking the way uh, the earthly person thinks. Of course he would think that way, right? And Jesus is, is saying to him, you, you hang with me, Nicodemus, and you're going to be thinking a whole different way. Okay? Yeah. You talk about people not having to do the basic stuff, all this new stuff. Yes, all the new stuff. It's just the New Testament congregation that had itchy ears. Oh, was that Ephesus? Was it Ephesus? I think so. It's always when you hear something Yeah, new. always want to hear something new. Okay. Yeah. 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 So. And where is that today? Pardon? If I recall correctly, the Pharisees were dedicated lay people. Yes, they were. These were not uh, professional clergy. So there. See, there you go, right there, proof in the Bible. All right, so, but they were very conservative, very conservative. That was, that was part of their deal. They were always in conflict theologically with a group called the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were, we could say, they were the liberal side of things, and the, the, uh, the Pharisees were the conservative side of things. So I've listed a few things here that uh, they believed. They believed in, in miracles, that God could act in a miraculous way. They believed in resurrection. Okay. By the way, the, the uh, Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. They, they, again, their, their view was that was mythology. That's not, that's not real. The Pharisees believed in the first five books of, uh, of Moses, uh, in the old Testament, the prophets, and also the Psalms. They believed that to be God's word and they were legalists. But see, again, part of their belief was, was that, if, if, uh, if we could obey God's law perfectly in all of its nuances, if we achieve that, that would usher in the coming of the Messiah and the Messianic kingdom. And so because that was their core belief, that was, that was who they were. That's why they spent so much time and effort uh, going around making sure that everybody else did the same thing. It was, it was kind of, you can kind of see where their intent was good, but the way they went about it was, uh, was onerous. It was, it was very much of a burden that they placed on uh, people. And so their thing was 
that we absolutely have to honor the traditions and the rituals of the church. Their, their idea of religious life was very much, uh, was very much regulated. Yeah, Carl. Pastor, when, when did the, the philosophy of the, the teaching of the scripture change? You can't think of what it was. Well, it went from the legalistic view of obeying, and then, get, then God comes and takes over uh-huh. to... Everything has to come up completely apart, which is in Revelations finally, and fall apart, and God returns. Oh, I don't know. That's a really good so question. Yeah. I mean, it's totally two different. Yeah, like how did that shift occur? Uh, it, kind of my working theory is that everybody reacts to somebody, and so it kind of works that way, is that the more emphasis there is over here to obedience and self-righteousness and all those kinds of things, then you get a counter swing the other way where with a group that, that would say, no, no, it, it isn't about that. So I don't, I don't know the answer to that question, okay? But human nature being what it is, there, there would be some merit to the idea that it was certainly a reaction, if you will. Okay? All right, uh, just a couple notes here uh, on the top of the next page uh, regarding, again, Nicodemus coming to Jesus. What, did, what do you make of Nicodemus's his, uh, affirming that the Sanhedrin knew that Jesus was something special? Do you pick that up? He says, Rabbi, we know. It isn't like they're ignorant of Jesus. It isn't like they're debating it. It isn't like they're, you know, thinking, well, I wonder if he's, you know, somebody we should pay attention to. No, no. What is it that he says? We know that you are a teacher come from God because nobody can do the signs that you're doing unless what? Unless he is from God. It sort of suggests that an intellectual approach toward who Jesus is is not the same as having faith in who Jesus is. Make sense? Yeah, Bob and then uh, Brenda. Just, uh, if you notice, he came by night. Yes. Because what do you make of that? He acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah. He would have been thrown out of the council. That's correct. So there's a little peer pressure there, is there not? for him to come at night. The other thing I read some little detail was that they, they often did their, most of their studying at night. And it kind of makes sense. You know, you're busy during the day and you got people that want stuff from you. So you, you study the scripture at night. And so that sort of suggests maybe also that perhaps there was a, uh, uh, an impetus for him to, uh, to do that as well. Yeah, Brent. Let's assume that Nicodemus was a good leader. Yes. He was trying to do the proper thing. Yes. They had been having trouble with year, for years with false messiahs. Yes. It's, it's always seemed to me that Nicodemus knew Jesus was knowledgeable, a good rabbi, perhaps a prophet. Mm-hmm. What he didn't know was if he was the Messiah or not. That's correct. And he had a duty to the people for whom he was responsible. This is correct. To examine that. Yeah, they all did. They are, and we don't know if Nicodemus was sent he was sort of the one, you know, everybody raise your hand who wants to go talk to Jesus. And he was the only one, you know, I mean, we don't know. There might have been that. We don't, we, we would surmise that there, there was some, some, not antagonism, but some irritation going on in his heart as he looked at what Jesus was doing and then considered the reaction that he's getting. So there, you, you sort of get that sense and you don't get that here, but you get that later in terms of what Jesus, uh, of what Nicodemus's uh, relation, how uh, that relationship changed. So I would, I would agree with you that he's not seeing Jesus as Messiah because he doesn't use the word Messiah. He's the word rabbi teacher. And we know, we know, but the point is, is that for me anyway, is that they knew they knew that this was somebody extra special because they use that word sign. See, it's, it's not just because you're doing these amazing things and people like you. It's because of the, we see the signs you're doing. The things you're doing are pointing to something special 
that goes beyond. So he would have had the duty to check that out. Absolutely. Because there were people that were claiming to be the Messiah who in fact were not, uh, not the Messiah. So then how does Jesus respond? In a totally understandable way. Not. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The, the word, the Greek word there, anathen, is the word that means born again or born anew. The, the word that we might use would be re, reborn, okay? That there's another birth. The Greek actually technically says born from above. So it has to do with this idea that there's, there's a fundamental and transformational change that has to occur in order for one to see, and the word see here means a, a, a experience and be a part of and, and perceive that sort of thing, participate in. That in order to be a part of the kingdom of God, that fundamental change has to occur. It's not enough simply to make an intellectual decision or to set up a structure that would bring this about, that there is a change that occurs within the person and that that's the pathway, if you will, to the kingdom of God. Yeah. So the Greek word means born from above. Born from above, born from, born anew, yes. So the Greeks had a concept of rebirth? Yes. I've not heard of this before. Aha. Uh -huh. So I had not either until I started to look at this, all right? So let's look down at point F. We'll just skip over everything else, Brenda, thanks to you. But we'll come back to it, okay? Because the concept of rebirth is in the New Testament, but the Greeks also had this kind of interesting sort of trying to figure this out. The, the deal with the Greeks, though, they didn't connect it to Jesus. They connected it to, to other things. But if you take a look at it, the Greek understanding, point F, was tied to what they called mystery religions, in the mystery religions, and this they often played this out in the uh, Broadway plays that they would put on in the amphitheater. So in the, the gist of the mystery religion was that a god would suffer, die, and rise again. So worship involves connecting oneself to the journey of the god and that you experience it through an emotional passion play setting. And when the mystic union was achieved, then the worshiper was said to be twice born. Isn't that interesting? So this was not totally foreign for John to say, to, to quote Jesus in saying, you must be born again. You must be twice born, if you will. That would not have fallen on on, on deaf ears and like, whoa, what are you even talking about? Because the Greeks had a, a skewed version of that. And so what John's going to do through Jesus is link this now to Jesus instead of suggesting, as the Greeks did, that you could have a mystic union with any God that you wanted. Does that make sense? And we're going to see that show up later in, uh, in our readings. Yeah. And having taught, okay... We study mythology. Yes. The hero's journey is, this is it. This they is have. it. That's it right. Part of their culture. That's correct. So see, it wouldn't have. And ours too. Yeah. Um, we've, we've, we talk about the hero's journey. We talk about uh, in initiation into manhood. I mean, we talk about all those kinds of things too. But again, from that, from that perspective of how does the rebirth occur? See, what, not, what was not questioned was that rebirth should occur. But the question would be, how does it occur? And does the way that it occurs come from God, or is it man-centered? If it's man-centered, it's never going to escape the sinful nature. That corruption will always be there because, you know, you come into the world with it. That's what you have, the sin nature. And if that's your nature, how do you ever get rid of the nature it's only through a rebirth, a new nature, if you will. And so that's what Jesus is saying. So Jesus says, 
Unless you're born again, you cannot see, all right? Uh, we know from the uh, New Testament, First uh, Peter talks a lot about that. If you look at uh, 1 Peter 1, 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, what? To be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice the, the verb there. He has caused us. See, did I cause it? I can't cause my own rebirth. I mean, you couldn't do it naturally. And that's what, that's what Nicodemus is going to struggle with. Well, what do you mean? I got to go into my mom's womb again? How, how is that going to happen? But I can't do that spiritually any more than I could do that physically. And then 1 Peter 1, and 23 says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So the connection of the word now to the rebirthing, it's not a mystic union with some Greek deity. It's what? It is a rebirthing through what God does uh, for us in, in in the word of God. Okay. And so again, the Jewish understanding of rebirth, they also had an understanding, but they tied it to a conversion to Judaism. So they said, yes, you can be born again, but the way you're born again is by becoming Jewish. If you convert to Judaism, then you have that. And then what happens is you are now a new person. And very often we see in the Old Testament particular, a person was given then a new name. We talked a little bit about that last week. And that what went along with that was, was that everything that was about your former life is gone almost like a new identity, almost like even though we remember how you were before, we will choose not to remember it from now on. That would be kind of nice to have that happen, wouldn't it? Yeah. Especially when people say, I remember you when you were this big, right? Yeah, that's right. And especially when you go to that church where they're saying that and you're trying to uh, do the sermon and then people are coming up to you afterwards saying, well, we remember you when you were this big. Okay. Yeah, that's a great moment. Let me tell you. (laughs) All right. So Jesus says, unless you're born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. So now what does Nicodemus do in verse four? He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, see, notice Nicodemus does what a lot of us do. When we encounter something that Jesus says, we go, first of all, to human logic, right? And we say, what? We're totally like blown away and totally confused because what Jesus is saying makes no logical sense. So that tells you a little bit about part of being born again, you start to experience a little shift in your thinking, okay? Which is kind of interesting to me. Well, let's see what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay, now Jesus says, what does he say again? Unless you're born of water and the Spirit. The connection there to baptism is unmistakable. Is that referencing a means of that rebirth can happen through Not only, as Peter said, the living and abiding word of God, that's one way, right? One mean we would say of grace. But the other one, or another one, is that by by the act of baptism. That what happens in baptism is that God attaches the promises of Jesus to us in that tangible way. That's why water is so significant in, in baptism that, and is essential for baptism. That when baptism occurs, the water hits your forehead or the water hits your whole body because you got dunked. Did anybody here get dunked, by the way? Anybody here? Yeah, that's a pretty cool thing, right? I know I told you the story of the of the immersion baptism I did when I was in uh, the Ozarks of Missouri. Remember I told you that story? Yeah, that was, um, 
I had been out of the seminary, I, I think a couple of years, and there was a man in the community that kind of lived across the street from us. And we just, you know, how you do with neighbors, you talk to neighbors. Well, anyway, he wanted to know more about the Lutheran faith and about being a Christian. And so I did some adult instruction with him. And it was kind of interesting because he, he was in a wheelchair and his intellectual capacity was, was limited. So there were some, some issues there. Anyway, he wanted to be baptized. And I thought, oh, this is awesome. We're going to go down to the church and we'll I'll bring a couple elders in and we'll go up to the front where the little font is and then we'll have the baptism. And he said, no, that's not a real baptism. He wanted to go to the lake and be baptized. And so we had a man in the church that had a fishing lake called Honey Lake. It was spring-fed And this was Southern Missouri in the Ozarks in March. So anyway, Honey Lake. So I got the elders. I said, well, guess what? We're going to go out to the, and we're going to do this immersion. And so we did. And the the memory of that is still etched in my head (laughs) of what that was like. I mean, really, it was, oh, yeah, my feet went numb. I know. Because, you know, you're up to here. And being a Lutheran, I never had done an immersion before. And so I had to turn to the Baptist channel to see how you did it. Because I didn't know. I mean, I really didn't know. And, and uh, so I had seen pictures of, you know, you grab the person's nose and then you do this with them and you do that. And then you go room like that. I mean, there's really, and of course, you know, it splashes all over you. And it was a very, a very wonderful thing. It was really a wonderful thing. Do what? Did you feel like John the Baptist? Well, there was a thought there. I, I don't think the Jordan River was quite as cold as Honey Lake was in uh, I don't know if the Jordan was spring fed, but anyway, it was a, it was a really, it was a, it was a wonderful thing. And so for those of you that have experienced that, I mean, again, we we would say from our Lutheran perspective that the importance is that it's the water's present with the word. It's not how much water, but for those that what we're blessed by that. I, I can see that where you feel like this sense of drowning the old nature and coming up out of the water now is the new nature and sort of being uh, the, the symbolism of that aspect of it would be fantastic. But so, so the point here is, is that Jesus is saying that, that that baptism is a way by which that rebirth can occur because the Holy Spirit is involved, because the Word is involved. And so that's why Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. See, human parents have what kind of kids? Human kids. Yeah, I know, this is like so new to you, right? right. So when your kids act human, who are you really need to blame? You. Yeah, because that's like you. All right. So human parents have human kids. Sinful parents have what kind of kids? Sinful kids. That's how it is. Right? But the beauty of it is, is that when you're born by the Spirit, what? You have that new birth, that rebirth, that new nature. Now it is what you can call your own. And so, you know, Jesus says, it's just like the wind. When the wind blows, you can't tell where it's going and you don't know where it came from. But whenever the wind blows, we all go, oh, the wind is blowing. Well, how do you know that? You can't see it, right? But you feel it, and you see the wind, you see the trees and all that blowing, and you see the leaves that are falling down in your yard that you have just mowed and you have just raked, right? So that's how that works. Okay. So verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, well, how can these things be? So he's still struggling with it. It's not logical. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Is he indicting Nicodemus? It sounds a little tough, doesn't it? 
But I get the sense, you know, again, see, Nicodemus coming out of his educational background and the way that these guys would, would debate theology and debate the Bible and the scriptures and all those kinds of things, I, I kind of think Jesus knew the kind of guy that Nicodemus is and, and could handle this. And so there is this sort of like, you know, I give it to you, you give it to me, kind of back and forth kind of thing. And I get the sense here that, that Jesus sees in Nicodemus a great spiritual potential for actually what is going to come later. But he's also challenging Nicodemus to think beyond human logic. See, there's a lot in the Bible that we can say, oh yeah, that's logical, that, that like fits perfectly. Oh, I get that, A plus B equals C. But there's a lot of stuff in the scriptures that if you're, if you're limiting yourself to understanding it, or maybe even in a deeper way, believing it, you might well, in fact, have to suspend your logic to do it. And that, I think, is a dilemma for a lot of people today. Because it, then it makes it kind of sound like that in order to have faith, I can't have an intellectual approach to the Bible. In order to have faith, I can't believe in science. In order to have faith, I can't I can't wrestle with, uh, with technology in order to have faith. See, we, we kind of set it up sometimes as if they are uh, uh, totally so mutually exclusive that you can't have one without the other. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, is that there are some things in the scriptures and in your faith life that it absolutely lines up perfectly in a logical way. But there will be that point in your faith life where what Jesus proposes or what Jesus does and the significance of it, you'll have to set aside your logic in order to make sense of it. That sometimes faith and logic collide with each other. And so an example of that would be, a, kind of a classic example would be the resurrection. See, it's not logical from a human perspective that one person should die and that that be redemption for the whole world. That is not logical. If I apply logic to it, it would be that everybody dies for everybody's sins, right? And that you get what you earn. But where mercy and grace collide with logic is the part where the word challenges us I have to think beyond that. Does that make sense? Yeah. We need a whole Bible study on that. Because I think we're all dealing with that, with uh, people that we come into contact with. I sometimes ask myself, why is it so easy for me to accept this, what I'm reading in God's Word, and what I'm experiencing? Mm -hmm. And then there are others that are just that feel, think that I'm foolish. I know. And that I'm so week or something that I have to do, count on yeah. this type of thing. It's tough. Yeah, I think that sometimes we disparage each other by saying that if you approach this from an intellectual perspective or from a logic perspective, that then you're less than. So it's a superiority inferior. You know, I'm spiritual and you're not. And so, you know, and, and all that does is create a reaction because we all react to each other to do this. Well, you're just one of those fundamentalist believers who, you know, you would believe in, in anything and, and you don't really approach it from a, you know, intellectual perspective. And so then, then, then what happens is, well, then I got I to gotta make it even. This is how we make stuff even. Have you ever noticed that? Now we're even. No, now we're even. I mean, that's how we do it. And, and I think that some of it is in how we approach it. I, th I just think it is. I know. It's uh, when you grow up in it, it's kind of hard to examine it without feeling like you're rejecting it. Right. And so, yeah, how do you how do you do that? And then how do you interact with people that didn't grow up in it or they grew up rejecting it? And then you're trying to go, well, how do we connect? How do we do that? Yeah. So I, I'm kind of hoping that in our study of John, we're sort of tackling that a little bit, okay? Because I think that's what John was trying to do. I think he, he recognized that he was raised as a Jewish guy, and yet he's like this really brilliant intellectual guy as well. 
And, and then you have the, uh, the Greeks who were all about intellectualism and, and how do you approach these things. And so how does the gospel bridge to that? I think that's what John's trying to do. And I think as John tries to do that, that's what we're trying to do. Philip, you want to add to that? Well, uh, <laughs> you're talking about like uh, logic and, and faith and whatnot. I, I'm, I can deal with uh, like the subject of the resurrection just fine. Mm-hmm. Where I'm struggling a lot more is uh, the, pa- the passages that we read not too long ago where, where Jesus answered about um, unless you're born of water and spirit, yeah. can't enter the kingdom of God. Yeah. And like that's something that I've heard in a lot of different uh, religious circles as well. Um, is that half, like so? So does that passage itself signify that in order to also be saved to receive salvation, it's not only the belief in Jesus Christ, but also being baptized? Yeah, sounds like, like it, doesn't but, it? But then there are other circles that say, like, there's nothing other than the belief in Jesus Christ. Nothing's more powerful than the belief of, of the Son of Man of God right. to to be in heaven. Yeah. So, like, that's just something that I've been struggling with mm-hmm. a lot logically. So yes. I wonder if there's something that you can expand on that or anyone else. Gee, Philip, I think we're just about out of time here. Uh, timing is so perfect here, Philip. Yeah. I will, I will be here next week, so. Oh, you won't hear me. Well, I assure you, we will cover it next week, so you might have to listen to the podcast. But the short answer is that's why we, we, we don't look at any one verse in isolation. We take scripture, interpret scripture. So there's, there's many things in the Bible that talks about how does rebirth occur? How, what, what is the connection of faith to that? How does faith occur? All those kinds of things. Okay. And so the short answer is, is that baptism is a means by which that happens. But as Peter pointed out, it's also through the living and abiding word of God. So sometimes what happens is baptism comes first and then faith out of that. And other times faith comes first through the word. And then the person says, I want to be baptized. So the, the connection of the two. Is, all right? is that kind of like when uh, Jesus talks about like the wind blowing? You're feeling, yes. You, you feel convicted by the spirit to be baptized? Yes. But, but you, the conviction by the spirit comes through exposure to the word. So it's not like I went to sleep last night and I woke up and I had that inclination. That what it is, is that the word has been working on me to get to that place. So that's why we talk about it in Lutheran world. We talk about it as the means of grace that, that these are for sure the way that the spirit does it is it's not that he limits himself. It's not to say that because God can do it every once, but he says where the word is there, the spirit is and where the spirit is there, the spirit is working faith. That's the beauty of it. See, that's why, we share the word. If, if, if faith could come some other way, then I got really no motivation to share the word with you, with anybody. Why would I? Because the spirit will just let the spirit do his thing. And then however he's going to do it. What the Bible talks about is that the spirit works through the word. And so that's the impetus for me to share the word with someone who does not know the word. If a missionary goes to a culture where the word has not been, he's not likely to find any, any believers. Well, and you think, well, the spirit, why didn't the spirit go there? Well, because the word hadn't been there. See, so that's part of the, part of the deal. But that's why we look at the multiple verses in the scripture. If you only looked at this verse, it would be very easy to conclude that the only way you can have uh, faith and, and come into the kingdom is, is if you're baptized. Well, then you're dealing with the issue of what about the unbaptized? What about the thief on the cross as an example? See, well, Jesus said today you're with me in paradise and that guy had not been baptized so, as far as we know. Yeah, see. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 doesn't say baptizing. Yeah, see, so again, it's just, it, it's, it's looking at the totality of scripture, not picking a verse in isolation. Make sense? Yeah. But uh, feel free to listen to the podcast, Philip, this coming week and next week. And, and then whatever. I know. And so whatever questions you have, you know, then bring them up uh, three weeks from now. Am I even here three weeks from now? That's a good question. Yeah. Just help me out with something. Yeah. Was part of Nicodemus's problem in grasping this the fact 
that he had for the first time to face the fact that the spirit might be individual and personalized as opposed to just for profit, priests and kings. I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah, it, Jesus is really testing his thinking. And see, I really like that. I really love that. It's, you know, Jesus didn't treat everybody like this, right? His encounters with people are all sort of tailored to that person and where that person is and what that person was capable of handling. And that's why I really like this approach with, with Nicodemus because Nicodemus was a learned guy. He probably had a PhD in something. And these guys would, would use debate and, and kind of the sword, sharpened sword kind of thing. And Jesus really goes to the heart of the matter with them. And I love that. And maybe that's a clue as to what uh, our approach as well. Okay, uh, we're, we're sort of at the end of our hour. So I kind of want to uh, respect that and honor that. And then also be relieved by that, I assure you. So... Um, <laughs> So let's, uh, let's close with prayer today and then we'll pick it up. Uh, we'll pick it up next week because this is pretty profound stuff that uh, Jesus is, is doing. Heavenly Father, thank you for our study today. Thank you for the way that your son Jesus comes at us and challenges us to, to think more deeply and in some sense to think more radically about how faith and logic and all those things, human understanding, how that all goes together and then what the limits of it are. We thank you for uh, the fact that you've given to us the gift of your word, the gift of baptism, and all the different ways that the word comes at us, all the different ways that we can be baptized in order to be uh, experiencing that sense of rebirth. So Lord, help us as we are reborn in you to live that rebirth every single day and especially the coming days of this week. Be with those of us here, be with those that are uh, participating in our class through the podcast and, and would simply pray that uh, you would challenge us to, to think more deeply about our faith and the way that we live our faith out each and every day. Watch over us this week and be with us until we're together again. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.